Our reading this morning is from Mark 10. Mark 10. Starting in verse 13. Going to 34. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake, for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. You may be seated. If you would, keep your Bibles open there to Mark 10. This morning we're going to meet a couple different groups uh, that are going to encounter Jesus. 
In both cases, Jesus responds to the groups or the group or the individual in a way that catches the disciples completely off guard. Um, They're dumbfounded by both of these instances. And Mark places these side by side in his gospel for a reason. And I think this morning it's vital for us to see these two encounters with Jesus, how Jesus responds, the disciples' shock at his response, and then ask, what do we then learn from these encounters? I think in doing so, we learn how it is that we approach Christ, how it is that we come to Christ, the manner in which we're received, accepted, loved by him. We learn how to come to him on his terms. And so this morning, if you are a note-taking type person, a couple points, and they're real simple, but we'll walk through this text together and see how it is that we come to Christ. So number one, come to Jesus like a child. Come to him like a child. See verses 13. We'll read again through verse 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. This may seem a bit obvious to you that have been raised in church or just familiar with Jesus' story. But I'm going to mention it anyways because I think we need to unpack it a bit. Jesus loved kids. Jesus loved children, and this is important because this was not the attitude of everyone in Jesus' day. In Greek, in Greek culture at this time, uh, children were not valued. In fact, in Greek culture, male children uh, were useful, and if a father didn't have a male son and his wife delivered a female, a daughter, uh, by Roman law, he was allowed to cast that child out and try again, if you will. A male heir to the family was important, but even then the father had the legal authority to grant life or death in his own household. Children were a resource. They were to continue the family business or to be used by the family in whatever way seemed necessary, even considered a liability, until they were old enough to contribute to society themselves. In keeping with Jewish culture, again, that's Greek culture, that's Roman culture, that's the world in which Jesus and his disciples were living. But in Jewish culture, our text opens this morning with parents bringing their children to Jesus so that he might bless them. This was proper, this was a a customary, this was a traditional thing in Jewish culture, traced all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 48. All of this comes, this blessing, these parents bringing their children before Jesus, all of this comes to a screeching halt when the disciples catch wind of what's happening, right? In the text, they, they, they rebuke them. And I want to be fair this morning and just at least give benefit of the doubt here that the disciples were rebuking these folks for bringing their kids to Jesus. Their intentions were hopefully good here. I mean, think about their ministry and what we've seen even in the Gospel of Mark to this point. Everywhere where Jesus shows up, there are massive crowds gathering. A couple times in the Gospel of Mark, so large, the crowds are so big that the Bible tells us there was a concern that Jesus might be physically crushed by the masses. Most of the time when he shows up, there's some kind of conflict that arises, whether it's with demonic warfare or with religious leaders or political movers and shakers in the the day that Jesus was living in. And so the disciples are, are trying to fence off Jesus' time and ministry. I think sometimes they even realize that it, when they were uh, thinking right, that they, they even realized that they themselves were often uh, um, bickering and complaining and 
Even this added pressure to Jesus' ministry. So I think their, their intentions were just to block Jesus' time and ministry off. In addition, these are just kids, right? That's what the disciples are thinking. These are kids. And if Jesus is coming as a, a military Messiah, one that would come in and with military force overthrow our oppressors, the Roman government, then what do these kids add? They can't add to that cause. They can't vote. They can't debate. They can't take up swords and fight for the liberation of the Jews. And remember, that's why they think Jesus is here. Military Messiah. He's coming to set Israel free. And so they don't want Jesus to waste his time here. You can imagine their rebuke. All right, get out of here. Master's busy. The Messiah is busy. Now, shalom, blessing to you. Go on and get on your way. All right, take the stroller and the diaper bag with you. Just be gone. We've got more important things to do. And Jesus sees what's happening, and he'll have none of it. In verse 14, it says that he was indignant. It's actually two words there in the Greek in the original language, much and grieved. And you can tell a lot about a person by the thing that, thing that grieves them, right? Tell a lot about me and you by what we become inflamed over. Jesus was much grieved when he saw the way that the disciples were treating these families and these kids. Jesus loved children. I think there's a bit of application for us. It's not our main point this morning, but I think we would be failing to miss at least an important point in the text if we don't mention this. Are we bringing kids to Jesus? Because we know Jesus loves children. Are we more like these parents bringing kids to Jesus that he might bless them? Or are we more like the disciples that have no time for babysitting? We've got better things to be doing with our time. Are we willing to work in nursery and in preschool rooms and VBS and Awana? Shameless plug here, Poplar Spring. We need more volunteers in those areas all the time. Are you willing to sacrifice a night of the week to love on kids and bring them to Jesus? Will you stand up and speak against the evils of abortion and sex trafficking and child poverty? These are a reality and not just in places around the world right here next door to us in North Carolina. I'm thankful that Poplar Spring is a place that kids are loved and welcomed and taught well. We must continue in this church family. And if you're not engaged there, I encourage you to think about how are you bringing and loving kids by bringing them to Jesus. Let's continue in the, in the text. Verse 14, Jesus saw it. He was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Don't miss this in verse 14. Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying there's, there's something about a child that's essential and necessary for entrance into God's kingdom. Well, what do you mean, Jesus? What does this statement mean? Well, let's start by saying what we know it does not mean. Right? <laughs> I think we'll get to what it means, but let's start by what it does not mean. It does not mean that these kids are innocent. Right? Because they're not innocent. If you don't believe that, just come and babysit Desmond for the day. See, real quickly, they're not innocent. They're not pure. There's no inert sweetness. Though they may act sweet at times, they are sinners in the same way that you and I are sinners. They're little sinners like we're big sinners. They have the same sin nature that Adam and Eve and you and I have. They're rebels by birth and choice. Still, for some reason, Jesus says that children are a better example for how to enter the kingdom of God than adults are. 
this statement. So why would he say that? Warren Wiersbe, I know some of you guys read him or read him, says this in his commentary. He says, we tell children to behave like adults, but Jesus tells adults to model themselves after children. What, what does this mean? What is Jesus getting at here? So I want to give you three observations from our text about the approach of these children to Jesus. And if you're a note-taking type person, jot these down because we're going to circle back to them in the end when we meet another individual that encounters Jesus. So three observations about children and their approach to Jesus. Number one, children come to Jesus undeniably helpless but with unwavering hope. Children come to Jesus undeniably helpless but with unwavering hope. Look at verse 13. It shows us that people, likely their parents, were bringing these children to Jesus. They're not able to drive the family camel or donkey. They're not able to get themselves there in their own strength. They're helpless. I mean, think about even a child that, that if you have children in the home. They're helpless to survive on their own. They live at the mercy of someone else. Hint, hint. <laughs> that should sound familiar to us. They're helpless to survive and only live at the mercy of someone else. Yet, even though they're helpless and live by the mercy of another, from the youngest of ages, they are filled with hope and expectation. They're not even aware of their needs. They're not even aware of the dangers that would await them if they did not have someone caring for them, living under someone else's mercy. They don't even know what their needs would be. Yet, they are full of hope that they will receive and, and be given those basic needs. They bring no authority. Children have no authority. They have no power. They have no standing or status or prestige. Yet they're hopeful. They're hopeful that their empty hands will be filled. And that's really good news. Because that is exactly the kind of hands that Christ does indeed fill. Those that come to him. Empty hand and say, I want to be yours. So, children come undeniably helpless but with unwavering hope. Second, Children come to Jesus completely unqualified, but with unconditional receptivity. Children come to Jesus completely unqualified, but with unconditional, that's important, no conditions, no clauses attached, reception. Verse 15, you see there Jesus says that the kingdom of God is to be received and cannot be earned. It's not something we work toward, strive toward, and earn in our own strength. It's something to be received. And so by a child's absolute dependence upon another, they point the way to entrance into God's kingdom. Children can enjoy a lot. If you don't believe that, just take a, a trip down this hallway and take a left and go by our nursery and just poke your head in the door. Children enjoy a lot. You hand them a few goldfish crackers and they think they've gained the world. They can enjoy all kinds of things. You give them a box of rocks and they're like, ah. They enjoy a whole lot, but they can explain very little. Ask them to explain deep concepts and they, it breaks down. They, they, they don't have the ability to do that. They live by faith and dependence. They must trust another to survive, to have answers, to have their needs met. And notice in the text even, but even in our own experiences, they don't get to Jesus in our text and say, Yeah, Jesus, thanks, Mom, for bringing me to meet him. And, and yeah, Jesus, I'll receive that blessing that you're wanting to give me, but I've got a few I've got a few. Clauses, exceptions, I've got a few conditions that I want you to meet. So I'll receive your blessing if, 
It'll give me the job I want when I grow up or the marriage I want or the house I want or the lands or the blessings that I have in mind. If you'll attach those to the blessing, then sure, I'm here. I'm waiting. Go ahead and pour out that blessing on me. That's not the attitude that they have. No, they come to Jesus completely incapable of earning his love and favor, yet they receive it unconditionally. Third thing, third observation about the way that kids are here in the text and from our experience we see. Children come to Jesus for loving care and lasting commitment. Children come to Jesus for loving care and lasting commitment. It says that he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Jesus, let's sink in for a moment. Jesus picks these children up into his arms. The same hands that will in a short time be nailed to a cross where he will die and atone for our sin. Those hands grab these children up and hold them. What an incredible picture of God's amazing grace that we're given. What an incredible visual picture of God's grace that we sing about every Sunday. That his tender, loving care, he brings them into himself. They bring nothing to him. They offer him nothing. And he brings them into himself. Friends, this is a picture of the gospel and should be our posture toward him. Right? I love the image of people just lifting their hands in worship because it looks like that. It looks like a, a child saying, Daddy, I need you right now. I want you. Pick me up. And this is, this is the picture we have of Christ taking these children into his arms and loving them with tender care. It says he's laying his hands on them. He blessed them. This is a traditional Hebrew blessing. This is a, it's this very descriptive here of what would have happened in Hebrew culture. Uh, Trent and Smalley, talking about this in their commentary, says that the features of a Hebrew blessing were several parts. In a Hebrew blessing, it was a, a meaningful touch, a spoken word, an attachment of high value, picturing special features and an active commitment. And so just kind of breaking that down, we see that Jesus fulfilled all of these in this half of a verse, right? He picks them up. He's holding them. He's speaking a word of blessing over them. And in doing so, he's attaching high value and intrinsic worth that they have, that these kids have. But more importantly, don't miss this. He's making an active commitment to see this blessing fulfilled. He's not just speaking a blessing over them. We know that he will work, strive for, and earn this blessing that he's pronouncing. You say, well, Matt, how does he do that? On a hill called Calvary. He goes and gives his life. He bears their sin. These children that he's taking into his arms, he bears their sin so that they can know true and everlasting love and care. Never-ending love and care. And when we come to Christ, it's for the same reasons. His loving care and his lasting commitment. And in both of those ways, he will never leave us wanting. He will never leave us wanting. He fulfills. He gives us loving care and lasting commitment. So a couple takeaways here real quick that I think we see in the first half of this. First, we have an incredible responsibility and call as adults, as parents, as aunts and uncles, as grandparents, as Sunday school teachers, as Awana verse listeners. We have an incredible call and responsibility to love and bring kids to Jesus. Jesus valued and welcomed children to himself. Let it never be said of us as individuals or Poplar Spring Baptist Church that we do not follow Christ in this. A Gallup survey from the Southern Baptist Convention reports, did a study a while back that says 19 out of 25 people who become Christians 
do so before the age of 25. Let that sink in. 19 out of 25 that become Christians do so before the age of 25. So to break that down, this is how those statistics play out over a lifetime. 25 years old. At 25 years old, 1 in 10,000 will become a Christian. At 35 years old, 1 in 50,000 will become a Christian. At 45 years old, 1 in 200,000 will become a Christian. At 55 years old, 1 in 300,000. And at 75 years old, 1 in 700,000 will become a Christian. Friends, those numbers show us that the stakes are high and the command is clear. We have no option but to pray for, strive for, work for the conversion and discipleship of our kids. It's one of the greatest tasks and responsibilities we've been given. Let us do that faithfully. Let's continue. Second thing I think we see here. No one, no one will get into heaven. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, so make sure you hear this. We see it in the next Individual that approaches Christ, no one will get into heaven unless he or she receives God's salvation like a child. No one. No exceptions. No one will get into heaven, will have relationship with God unless it's, unless it's received by faith in Jesus Christ like a child. And so in that, we come to Christ in helpless dependence. That's what it looks like. It looks like a child coming. No status, no credentials. They come to Come in helpless dependence, needing someone else, needing the grace and mercy of someone else. And that's our posture in coming to Christ. Helpless dependence. The old hymn gets it exactly right. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, and helpless, I look to thee for grace. We cannot come clenching anything else in our other hand. And we see this in our next encounter. It's our second point, if you will. Don't come to Jesus. So first point, come to Jesus like a child. Second point, don't come to Jesus white-knuckling anything else. <laughs> don't come to Jesus white-knuckling anything else. Look at verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now in the other Gospels, as we read in, uh, in Matthew and of Luke and the other Gospels, we learn that this man was rich, that he was young, and that he was a ruler. He was some type of, of business owner or man who had people under him. He was a ruler. And so for these reasons, this guy is often referred to as the rich, young ruler. Each Gospel gives us a different description of him, and, and put together, we see that he's the rich, young ruler. Look at verse 18. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus has this guy come to him and he's speak, seeking spiritual truth. He's a spiritual seeker and what Jesus tells him is too hard for him to accept and he simply walks away. And the disciples are dumbfounded by this. I told you in both cases, their reaction, their response is quite different from Jesus. And they're dumbfounded. Notice their response, verse 23. 
Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. There's a lot of folks in our world, maybe even some of you here this morning, that would, that would believe that you can't acquire great wealth without taking advantage of someone. Political and economic philosophies have been built on this idea, this premise, that if you are going to arrive, if you're going to get where you're going as far as wealth and, 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 and money is, re, is, is concerned, then you're required along the way, you're going to have to at some point step on others. And if that's your thinking, if that's the way you think about wealth and, and money, if that's what you're thinking, then when you read this text, you might expect the disciples to respond and say, yeah, Jesus, that's right. I'm glad you're not going to let him in your kingdom. Those rich dudes, they've had their time here on earth. They've, they've had their day long enough. They've abused enough people. They've exploited enough people. But that's not what they say. That's not what the disciples respond in saying. Instead, they say, if he can't be saved, then who can? If this guy can't be saved, then who can? The disciples, you see, were from our culture that was different. They didn't understand wealth in that way. They didn't see wealth as intrinsically evil. Instead, they saw it as a reward for a faithful life. You live a faithful and moral life before God, and he blesses you with prosperity. That's, that's the way their minds are working. They thought if you lived a good life, then God's going to repay you. And we see this same type of understanding in, in, the, in the Old Testament, in the book of Job, right? You guys know Job's story. He goes through incredible affliction. He loses his family. He loses his income. He loses his workers. He loses his house. He loses everything, even his own health. And these friends of Job come along and they assume that material prosperity was a sign that you're living for God. So it's reasonable to con conclude then, if Job is experiencing this kind of suffering and affliction, then he needs to repent because he's obviously not following God. Here Jesus shows us that both of these views are too simplistic. Jesus rejects both of these ideas. That wealth is not a sign of exploitation. doesn't mean that you've abused people. Or it's not a sign of God's favor. It's not a sign that God's blessing you because of faithfulness. You see his response to the man. You see the way that Jesus responds to him. And we see Jesus' opinion on the matter comes out. He refers him back to the Ten Commandments, right? When the guy comes up and asks this question, he goes straight to the, to the scriptures, to the Ten Commandments. He says, do not defraud. Or in other words, have you been sketchy in your business dealings? Have you abused people in your business dealings? Do not steal or give false testimony. Or in other words, have you stolen or exploited someone to gain this wealth? And the young man responds, you see there in the text, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. In other words, no, Jesus. My wealth has been gained fairly and honestly. I've not abused people. I've not exploited anyone. But note this. This is important for us. I think too often we read through this without seeing this. Note this is important. Jesus doesn't turn to him after he says, no, I've kept these from my youth. Jesus doesn't turn to him and say, you're a liar. <laughs> you're a liar. No, Jesus just in silence accepts the man's assertion. He, he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't push back here. So while you can get rich from abusing people, while you can gain wealth, at the, at the expense of someone else, it's not always the case. 
Jesus doesn't push back here. Jesus doesn't call him on this assertion. I think we see in that Jesus has no ideological problem with wealth per se. Let's say that money's the problem, wealth is the problem, riches are the problem in itself. But at the same time, in the same passage, you have Jesus continuing. He says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. So how do we reconcile these two in Jesus' teaching here? In one section, it's not even like one's found over here and one's found in this book of the Bible. No, in one encounter with Jesus... He doesn't push back on this man's assertion that his wealth has been gained fairly and honestly. He doesn't rebuke him for his wealth per se. And yet he says this incredibly hard statement about a camel going through the eye of a needle and the impossibility of riches in the kingdom of God. I think over the years we've seen preachers deal with this text in in a lot of strange and, and quite frankly some silly ways. I think are just downright wrong. You hear preachers talk about, well, it's not, it's not literally the eye of a needle, right? It's not literally talking about an, a needle here, you see, because in Jesus' day, Jerusalem had some walls around it, and those walls had some gates, and the gates were really narrow and really small, and it was hard to get a camel through, especially if the camel was carrying a load on its back. But if you were to strip the camel of its load and get the camel down on its knees, and the camel held its breath and held its head the right way, and you pushed hard enough, you could get the camel through the gate, the eye of the needle. Seems reaching to me. Or you hear preachers that may say, this is, uh, this is not a literal camel that's being talked about here, right? So one of the explanations is, well, there's an Aramaic word that Jesus spoke Aramaic. And this Aramaic word for twine actually sounds a lot like the word for camel. And Jesus didn't enunciate well. And so the, the disciples heard him wrong. And when they wrote their gospels, they just used camel. When really Jesus was talking about twine here. And, and twine is hard to get through the eye of a needle. But if you spit on it just right and you twist it right and you poke it just right, it will go through the eye of a needle. I think both of these explanations and those like them are silly and really miss the point altogether. Jesus is clear here in what he means. And if you read the context around this entire statement... Every culture has a metaphor like this. We speak with metaphors like this, right? Uh, Think of the saying in our culture, a snowball's chance in hell. We hear that and we know exactly what it means. That a snowball can't endure warm weather. And the thought that a snowball could endure even a second in hell is nonsense. It would evaporate that quickly. And this is their version of that metaphor. It's their way of saying the exact same thing, a snowball's chance in hell. Jesus is making it clear here that it's impossible for the rich to get into the kingdom of God. He means what he says. There's no trickery in his language here. But we must be careful to distinguish how Jesus is saying this. Exactly what Jesus means when he says this. Jesus did not teach. He was not meaning here that it's it's a sin to be rich. Or that all rich people are going to hell and all poor people are going to heaven. Because if you go there, the logical conclusion is that, well, if rich people go to hell, then all poor people must be going to heaven. But that doesn't make sense either. He's not making an ultimate final statement like that. Also, he is not here giving us a tip on how to spend our money, our wealth. Like, well, you know, guys, just be careful, right? Just be careful with your money. Don't fall into greed. Don't be stingy. You know, be generous from time to time and give away some of it and you'll be okay. That's not what Jesus is saying. Listen close. Jesus is saying here, 
help unpack this for us as best as possible. Jesus is saying here that there is something radically wrong with every single one of us. And that there are things in life, particularly money, that have the ability to blind us to the problem, the real problem, the sin problem that all of us have. And without a miracle, without God's grace, without a miracle, this blinding that wealth, power, influence, bless, material blessing, those things can deceive us to the point that we need a miraculous work of grace, the grace of God, so that we see our spiritual state before him. And without a miracle like this, without the miracle of God's grace showing us our sin and need for him, then we have no hope. We have absolutely no hope of seeing the kingdom of God. It's as impossible as a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's unthinkable. And watch how Jesus reveals this deadly trap. He shows it to us in the life of this rich young ruler. It looks like this guy has it all together, right? I mean, he he not just has wealth and power, status and influence. He's also a religious guy. Looks like he has all of these things together. And even the way that he responds to Jesus' question. But then verse verse 17, we know that he doesn't have it all together because of his question. Verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Any devout Jew living at this time would have been able to answer his question. Obey the commandments and avoid all sin. This was not a debate. There was no debate over this question. Any of the schools of Jewish thought, any of the Jewish rabbis living at this time would have given the same exact answer. Obey the law, obey the commands of God, and avoid sin. This young man would have known that answer. Even the fact that he says to Jesus, I've done these things, I've lived up to these laws, it shows us this man was a religious guy. He had the answer given to him before. And yet the young man comes to Jesus and he asks this question. Why was he asking Jesus this question? Why in verse 17 does he, does he seek out Jesus and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Because, friends, there was a hole in him that despite his influence, despite his wealth, despite his power, despite his religiosity, there was a hole in him that nothing could fill. And watch Jesus' reply to him in verse 21. One thing. One thing you lack. The young man has been saying, I've been doing it right. I've been morally successful. I've been economically successful. I've been socially successful. I've been religiously successful. Now I've heard, Jesus, that you're a good rabbi, and I'm wondering what I've missed. Where did I go wrong? What did I miss along the way? I had to have overlooked something. Because even though I've done all of this, I'm still empty. There's still a hole. I'm still missing something. Friends, don't miss this today. Of course he was missing something. And you may miss, be missing the same thing today. You may be in the same exact boat today here this morning at Poplar Spring Baptist Church. Wondering why there's a void in your life. Wondering why I'm missing something. A hole in me that nothing will fill. Listen to me closely because I think this is the, 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 the point and the hinge of this whole incredible encounter here. Anyone who is counting on what they're doing to get eternal life will find that in spite of everything, how successful they've been in the world's eyes or even in their own eyes, And despite everything that they've accomplished, they'll still be empty, full of doubt, full of insecurity. Why? Because how do you know when good is good enough? How do you know when good is good enough? You strive, you work, you try to earn your way. But how do you know if if, if, if it's really just a scale of being good enough, then how do I know that at the end of my life it's going to be tipped in the favor of good and not just slightly not good enough? That leaves you incredibly desperate and hopeless. And when we're relying on our own efforts, when we're striving and striving and striving to earn our way, we'll never, ever get there. 
And you see this guy before Jesus. He has it all pulled together. He has degrees from the right place. He's already a ruler, incredibly successful. He's, he has mansions and sports cars. He's still a young guy. Yet to his own surprise, he's out on a, on a sunshiny, pretty day seeking gurus and rabbis and teachers so that he can attempt to find what's missing. You can hear the desperation. What will fix me? What will fix me? I know that I'm broken and I'm willing to make a change. Just tell me what to do and I'll add it to my list. A list of chores, my check boxes that I'm doing. Well, Jesus gets, gives him the answer and it hits him like a ton of bricks. The man, when he approaches Jesus, you see a hint of it coming even early in their conversation. You see a hint from the very first thing that he says to Jesus. Uh, back up in verse 17, he comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in verse 18, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why is it that you're calling me good? No one is good except God alone. And there's the hint, right? There's the hint at where Jesus is fixing to dive in deeper in a moment. And notice that Jesus is not saying that he himself, that Jesus is not good. Jesus doesn't say that, uh, why are you calling me good? I, Jesus, am not good. That's not what he says. Jesus is saying, why are you walking up to someone that you think is just a normal human rabbi? Why are you walking up to a normal human rabbi that you think is a normal human rabbi and calling him good? You see, there's a serious problem in your understanding of goodness and badness. And there's the hint. That's where he's going to dive in deeper in just a moment. And then comes this gut-wrenching answer from Jesus. He's already accepted They've went through the commandments together, just back and forth. He's already accepted what the man said about trusting and obeying the commandments. And Jesus has already accepted what the man said about living an ethical life, living according to the law that, that the Jews had. And yet Jesus says to the man, you must go deeper. You must go deeper. And Jesus proceeds to tell the man the one thing he must do. He says this, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Jesus is pointing to the man's deepest need, the man's deepest sin problem. And he's making it clear that this man has placed his faith, his trust, and his worth in his own accomplishments. He's been trusting in his ability to keep the commandments. He's been trusting in his ability to, to keep the law, the Old Testament law. He's been trusting that his wealth, his money, and his, his riches are evidence of that blessing, of that commandment keeping. And Jesus says that all of this, all of this effort, all of this striving, all of this trusting in your own uh, ability to obey, all of that's actually had the opposite effect, and you're actually alienating yourself from God. And in this moment, Jesus says, I want you to imagine, looks at this man and says, I want you to imagine your life without money. Imagine it's all gone. Imagine you have no inheritance, no inventory, no servants, no mansions, nothing. It's all gone. It's all gone and all you have is me. Can you live like that? Can you accept that? All of it's gone and all you have is me. Can you live like that? Well, how does the young man respond to this life-altering question? Verse 22. Verse 22, it says he was disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Some of your texts will say sorrowful. Some of your translations will say that he went away sad or better translation, grieved. He went away grieved. I want to show you why grieved is actually a better translation. There's a place in your Bible in the New Testament where the same word grieved in the Greek is applied to Jesus. This word grieved, that the text says that he was grieved. He went away grieved because he had much uh, that, that applies to Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is writing his Gospel and he tells about Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says that he was so grieved, same word, 
that he started to sweat drops of blood, that he was in such deep distress. Why would it be that, that, that Matthew would use this same word here for Jesus, this deep agony that Jesus was feeling, he would be so grieved that he would have this sort of response, that he would sweat drops of blood? Yeah, he knew he was near death. There was physical pain and torture that was coming for Jesus, and Jesus knew that. But more importantly, he knew that he was about to experience the ultimate rejection. Jesus knew that it was coming and that in a, in a short while, he was about to experience the wrath of Almighty God for your sin and for mine. He was about to lose the joy of his life. He was about to lose the core of who he was. He was about to lose perfect fellowship with the Father by taking our sins. That By taking my guilt and your guilt, he was about to experience separation from the Father. And that caused him to grieve. So when Jesus calls this rich young ruler to give up his money, he started to grieve because money was for him what the Father was to Jesus. He grieved because money was for him what the Father was for Jesus and what Jesus was looking at coming toward him in the cross. And to lose money, his stuff, his material, blessings was to lose himself for this rich young ruler. To lose the joy of his life, what he had found satisfaction in, what he had been pursuing, what he had been given his life to. And to, get, to have God as Savior, he must replace that thing that had been occupying the seat of lordship in his heart, the seat of Savior in his own life. He had to give that up to Jesus for some, someone to fill that place. And friends, don't, don't, don't be confused. Every one of us has something there. We're finding hope. We're looking for satisfaction in something. Whether it's kids, whether it's spouse, whether it's job, whether it's financial security, whether it's entertainment. We're all hoping and finding joy in something. And Jesus' response here is very specific for this man. Can you imagine if it's all gone and all you have is me? All your money, all your wealth is gone and all you have is me. But friends, you could apply that to anything in your life. What if that thing were gone and all you had was Christ? Is that enough? This man's problem was not financial worth. This man's problem was moral worth. Financial blessing, riches, wealth was just a symptom he thought by his law keeping, he didn't need the grace of God. He thought that by doing these things in the Old Testament, he, he had fulfilled and he had he'd accomplished, he had done what God had required, and he didn't need the grace of God. Listen, friends, Christians are those that understand their salvation is impossible apart from a miracle, a miracle of God's grace. So see how these two encounters are radically different, drastically different. I told you we'd circle back here. Kids come to Jesus and the disciples are put off by it. Yet Jesus accepts them. A rich and powerful, influential, religious man comes up to Jesus, and the disciples are overjoyed, right? Like, Jesus, this is the kind of guy we need in our movement. This is the kind of guy that could push our movement forward. Yet Jesus calls out his sin. He leaves heartbroken and clutching his idol. And so Mark puts these two accounts side by side, and so that we'll see that. So if you wrote these down earlier, look at this, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but Jesus, or the children come to Jesus, undeniably helpless, and with unwavering hope, this rich young man came thinking he had it put together, but still feeling a hole in his life, still feeling a void that nothing could fill. Children come to Jesus completely unqualified, but with unconditional receptivity, that they, they come to him without any conditions. This rich young man came, came thinking that he had the credentials, and the disciples thought that he had the credentials. And yet he recoiled when Jesus showed him what the conditions were to surrender everything and follow Christ. 
Children come to Jesus for loving care and lasting commitment. This rich young man came for his problem to be fixed, for the hole, the void in his life to be filled, but he discovered that his idol, personal achievement, money, religiosity, was something that he would not give up. And Jesus says, I won't play fiddle, second fiddle to anyone or anything. I will not be second in your life. And so instead of lasting love and commitment from Jesus, he settles for a short lifetime of material blessing and behavior modification. Let it never be said of us, Poplar Spring, that we would trade an eternity in lasting love and care and commitment of the Father for a short lifetime of material blessing and behavior modification. Because if we're pursuing religion, that's all that is. And Mark, indeed Christ himself, shows us how futile it is to allow anything to take Christ's seat of lordship in our life. Come to him like a child in humble, expectant, unconditional faith. So a few questions just as we conclude and apply this text. A few questions for us to wrestle with. Are you living a life that is characterized by bringing children to Jesus? Are you doing that? Are we focused on that? Second, what is your attitude toward money? I told you already, this rich young ruler serves an example for us for how anything, including uh, even religion, even good things, can become idols. I think that we can apply that to anything. But the reality is Jesus uses this example of money because the threat is real for us, for every one of us. For every one time that Jesus warns about the dangers of sexual immorality, he warns about the dangers of money ten times. He knows that we're going to struggle here. He knows that money is going to be a lure for every one of us and wealth. How do I know if it's become an idol for me? How do I know if it's become my God? Well, a few questions to help us identify. Do you feel anxiety? Do you feel worry at the thought of giving large sums of money away? Whatever large sum may be in your context and for your situation, does it cause you anxiety to think about that? Second, do you panic if your bank account goes below what you're accustomed to? Or is your dependence upon him, on Christ? Three, does it get under your skin? When you see people doing better financially than you, even though you feel you've worked harder or longer or might be a better person than they are. Tim Keller says this. If you answered yes to any of these things, he, he follows up and says this. You have one foot in the trap. Jesus reveals the trap to us and you have one foot in the trap because for you then, money is no longer just a tool to glorify, to worship, to honor God. It's the scorecard. It is your essence. It is your identity. And no matter how much or little money you have, though it's not intrinsically evil, it has incredible power to keep you from God. As we conclude, and I'm wrapping up, I love how Keller, and again, his, his commentary on this fleshes this out. He says this, Notice how Mark talks about the way that Jesus looked at this rich young man. Look at verse 21 with me, and we're, we're wrapping up. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Why was it that at this moment, and of all the people that we've seen Mark talking about that meet Jesus, why was it at this moment that he specifically mentions that Jesus looked at him and loved him? Of course, Jesus was a loving guy, characterized by love, but the gospel writers rarely ever say explicitly that Jesus looked at this guy or this woman or this child in tender love toward a specific person. Was it that Jesus loved him for his money or his power or his ability or his status? No. Was it because of the good question he asked? No. Was it because he flattered Jesus by calling him a good teacher? No. 
it was that at this point, Jesus is about 31 years old. He's similar in age to the guy he's talking to. And in this moment, he looks at this young man and, and identifies with him. You see, Jesus, too, was a rich young man. Far richer than that man knew or far richer than either of us or any of us understand. Jesus was a rich young man, too, and had lived in infinite glory, infinite wealth, infinite power, infinite love and joy in the Trinity for all eternity. And he's already left that wealth behind him. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, Though Christ was rich, for our sakes he became poor. And in this moment, it's as if Jesus is saying to this man as he looks into his eyes, who's a similar age, who's also a rich young man, it's as if Jesus looks in his eyes and saying, I'm going into incredible poverty, much deeper poverty than anyone has ever known. Why am I doing that? For you. I'm giving the ultimate all to get you. Can you give your little, bitty, insignificant all to come and follow me? I won't do anything. I won't ask you to do anything I've not already done. I'm not asking you to give away something that I've not already given away infinitely times, infinite times more. I'm the ultimate rich, wrong, young, wrong, rich young ruler who's already sacrificed the greatest wealth to come to you. We give yours away to come to me. And friends, I think when we see Jesus as the true and better rich young ruler, it changes our attitude about everything. Then no longer is, is, is our standard for wealth and money. and is, No longer that, is that the standard. The cross becomes the standard for our wealth and generosity. Will you come to this cross today and give your life to this ruler? This one who gave it all to, to come to us. Let's pray together. Spirit, we need you to help us apply the word, to help us see places in our lives where we've said no, or places in our lives where we've not even known that we've said no. God, with our, our desire to, to follow you, with our desire to, to strive for obedience, which is right and good, afraid that oftentimes in the church today we've, we've trusted in that and not in your grace alone for salvation. So help us to see today that our rule keeping, our rule following is not good enough. That we need forgiveness of sins. We need Christ's righteousness on our behalf, on our account. And we'll worship you. We praise you because you left infinite glory and wealth to pursue us. So be honored in this time as we respond, as we seek to apply this and, and come as children to you in helpless dependence. Help us do that. Give us grace to do that. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.